In the last episode, we covered Robert Anton Wilson's guerrilla ontology and his work towards breaking down the reality tunnels of the politically powerful using paranoia. Well, to paraphrase the ancient seers, karma can be a b because that paranoia that Wilson put out into the world would come back and haunt him. In 1971, Robert Anton Wilson retreated from the political scene of Chicago, first heading to Mexico, and then later to Northern California. There he attempted to focus on the life of the writer and to engage in occult experimentation, synthesizing the works of John Lilly, Timothy Leary, and Aleister Crawley as part of an ongoing shamanic quest for positive brain change. An apparent direct result of these experiments, Wilson went through nearly a decade of terrifying experiences involving demonic phantasms, synchronicities, and telepathic messages. He called it Chapel Perilous. Today on the Spectral Skull session, we continue our exploration of the life and works of Robert Anton Wilson, with a focus on Wilson's peak paranormal experiences. What is Chapel Perilous? How did Wilson find himself there? How did Wilson ultimately get out? All this and more in the next hour of the Spectral Skull Session. Advertisement goes here. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. To recap from the last episode, we walked through Robert Anton Wilson's life, from his birth in Brooklyn to his employment with Playboy magazine in Chicago. Wilson and the larger Discordian movement mobilized a counterintelligence operation called Operation Mindfuck. Their aim was to shield his friend, Carrie Thornley, from a law enforcement witch hunt. The idea behind Operation Mindfuck was to seed the public discourse with rumors, allegations, and hints suggesting widespread conspiracies. These conspiracies would link various groups to both the Illuminati and the Discordians themselves. The immediate purpose here was to reverse gaslight New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. Last episode, we also learned that Wilson saw himself as engaged in, quote, guerrilla ontology. And over this past week, I found a quote from Wilson that shed some light on what exactly guerrilla ontology was. Quote, I saw discordianism as the cosmic giggle factor, introducing so many alternative paranoias that everybody could pick a favorite if they were inclined that way. I also hoped that some less gullible souls, overwhelmed by this embarrassment of riches, might see through the whole paranoia game and decide to mutate to a wider, funnier, more hopeful reality map. Do you ever have this problem? 
You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom. You're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine. But then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom. Your hands smell like herb. You've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door. You're not vibing. You gotta light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Trees sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar, which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube-themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box in every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just Adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website, happytreesupplies.com. But now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. Check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. I interpret Wilson as saying that he hoped people would see through the paranoia. The deadpan satire would eventually get so over the top that people would catch on to the joke. And in doing so, they might let go of some of their other paranoias, thereby dispelling the dark mindset of distrust so prevalent in the late 1960s and 70s. The path that Wilson was on took a turn after he left Playboy, moving his family first to Mexico for an extended vacation and then to Northern California. Wilson began studying, among other things, the works of occultist Aleister Crawley. Now, Aleister Crawley played a significant role in the American counterculture of the 1970s, even though he had died in 1947. Various countercultural thought leaders had rediscovered him and begun reading works such as The Book of Lies and Magic Without Tears. Today, Crawley has a bad reputation in many circles. He's thought of as a Satanist, and not a high Satanist like from the Church of Satan, just an old-fashioned devil worshiper. That's what I thought myself. But based on my reading and what Wilson has to say about him, it sounds like Crowley was much less of a Satanist and more of an atheist or an agnostic. After all, Crowley didn't really have any interest in theology, theology being theory of God. 
He once said it didn't matter if the entities he contacted through Ritual Magic were real or not. He was more interested in combining Western esotericism with Eastern practices like yoga, tantra, and meditation for the purpose of conducting an inner journey of self-discovery. That doesn't rule out that Crowley may have been under the influence of negative spirits, possibly demons. As we see from Wilson's experience, you don't necessarily have to believe in these entities in order for them to believe in you. In any event, Wilson explains himself by offering a summary of his understanding of what Crowley was all about. Here's a quote from Cosmic Trigger. The Crowleyan system, very briefly, is a synthesis of three elements. One, Western occultism, the secret illuminated teachings out of 19th century Rosicrucianism, possibly going back through Renaissance magic societies, medieval witchcraft, the Knights Templar, European Sufis, etc., to Gnosticism, and thence back possibly to the Eleusinian mysteries and Egyptian cults. Basically, as Crowley says, this method consists of dangerous, quote, physiological experiments using rituals, sometimes drugs, sometimes sex, to jolt the nervous system into higher functioning, or new neurological circuitry. Two, Eastern yoga, including meditation, plus physical exercises to make meditation easier and more natural, another system of activating higher circuits. Three, modern scientific method. Crowley taught total skepticism about all results obtained, the keeping of careful, objective records of each experiment, and detached philosophical analysis after each stage of increased awareness. Before you, dear listener, gets any ideas about following in Robert Anton Wilson's footsteps, following in Crowley's magical footsteps, let me remind you of Crowley's admonitions against practicing magic without proper preparation. This warning is repeated in Cosmic Trigger by Wilson. He says, quote, Crowley always insisted that nobody should try his more advanced techniques without A, being in excellent health, B, being competent in at least one athletic skill, C, being able to conduct experiments accurately in at least one science, D, having a general knowledge of several sciences, E, being able to pass an examination in formal logic, and F, being able to pass an examination in the history of philosophy, including idealism, materialism, rationalism, spiritualism, comparative theology, etc., in any event, all of this gives us a sense of what Wilson saw himself as doing when he started putting the works of Aleister Crowley into practice. In 1973, Wilson began performing Crowley's Bornness Ritual. This was a magical ceremony based on a Greco-Egyptian exorcism rite. As a counterculturalist following the wake of Timothy Leary and John Lilly, Wilson conducted this ritual while on LSD. In recounting his experience, Wilson describes himself as undergoing a series of deaths and rebirths into other modes of being, as an animal, as a divinity, and then as a star. Wilson recognized the various entities that he encountered on this journey as different figures from different religions. He saw the Hindu gods of Shiva and Kali. He saw the ancient Greek gods, Pan and Aphrodite. And he also saw the Blessed Virgin Mary. As the experience became more intense, Wilson reported, the shaman, that's him, achieved a rush of Jungian archetypes. 
strongly influenced by the imagery of Crowley's invocation, but nonetheless having that peculiar quality of external reality and alien intelligence emphasized by Jung in his discussion of the archetypes. So this is really cool that Wilson is having a trance-like experience and a vision, and he says, I interpret this vision in terms of contemporary psychology. But on another occasion, Wilson had a much darker experience. And I'm going to just read from, this is the second volume of his autobiography, Cosmic Trigger Part 2, colon, Down to Earth. In 1972, on a farm in Mendocino, I was preparing for the Phoenician Mass, a ritual designed by Aleister Crowley, in which the magician tries to activate his true will. I had taken 250 micrograms of acid, played Beethoven, and left when I felt ready, heading to my improvised altar, where I began the invocation. East of the altar see me stand, with light and music in mine hand. I held up a sacred cake and recited the next lines. This bread I eat, this oath I swear, as I inflame myself with prayer. There is no grace, there is no guilt. This is the law, do what thou wilt. Suddenly, dog-faced demons invaded the room, forming a ring around me. They were black and pretty creepy, and they drooled or foamed a bit on their mouths, and they looked as solid as the bed and desk behind them. Oh, damn it, I thought. Crowley always warned us that something like that could happen, but I never took it seriously. I thought that was another of his jokes. What am I doing now? At one level, I was really scared, but on another level, I had confidence in my learned ability to work in the infernal, to navigate regions of psychedelic space, the astral areas, or whatever one should call these particularly ugly reality tunnels. I remembered something from H.P. Lovecraft, quote, don't call something up that you can't put down, end quote. That was not helpful. But then I remembered something from another book, quote, if you feed them, they become allies instead of enemies, end quote. I was concentrating on party meals, and the altar was suddenly full of shrimp cocktails with hot red sauce. I hadn't planned this, and it amused me. I had unconsciously evoked one of my favorite snacks. I started giving the prawn cocktails to the demons. They took them, ate them, and then they all turned into nuns. I remembered these nuns from my high school days, and they also shrank into rather weird dwarfs. They, they had been taller than me in school, but now I was taller than them. The nuns had lost the ability to scare me. I started to laugh and realized that the ritual was ruined in a sense. In another sense, it had been a huge success. I broke the circle and grounded the energy as the nuns disbanded. Then I lay on the bed and laughed like a bloody idiot for half an hour. It was one of the many, many times during which I was fully convinced that all of the entities invoked in magic are part of our own mind. Then the room started shaking. The bed bounced like a scene from The Exorcist, and the whole house seemed to shake to its very foundations. It turned out to be just another California earthquake. Coincidence. It would be better not to even call it a synchronicity. Although it has a happy ending, this experience 
may have upset Wilson more than he let on, because he put his LSD use behind him after this. A few days later, he performed another magical ritual, this time without any drugs. This was a kind of tantric meditation. He says he was able to undertake it only because of the help of, quote, the most beautiful woman in the galaxy. That would be his wife, Arlene. He doesn't go into detail about what it was that he and Arlene did, but he does hint that the secret is contained in Aleister Crawley's Book of Lies, chapter 69. Yes, the chapter number is really all you need to know. In any event, the next day he woke up from a dream and wrote down three words. Serious is important. And thus began his passage into Chapel Perilous. For the next few years, Wilson would be troubled by telepathic messages, apparently sent from beings living on a planet orbiting the star Sirius. The period during which he channeled their messages would correspond with a general uptick in synchronicities, clairvoyance, and general strangeness. Wilson does not go into much detail about what the Syrians, but Syrians is my name for these beings, whatever they were. Uh, he doesn't go into much detail about what exactly they told him. He does say that on one occasion, the Syrians told him, quote, he lives the happiest who forgives the most, end quote. It was a well-timed message because Wilson was actually very angry with his publishers for not sending him a much-needed check. But generally, Wilson says that the Syrians assailed him with gibberish. They would talk about space, time, and eternity. Wilson speculates that perhaps he wasn't able to understand their messages because he wasn't advanced enough. He would be a student of quantum mechanics and a pop scholar on the topics of Bell's theorem, non-locality, and other aspects of QM throughout his subsequent books and articles, suggesting that he did try to read up and get to the level of the Syrians. Let's talk a little bit about the star Sirius. Uh, Sirius, it should be noted, is known as the dog star. It is the brightest star in the night sky, but it is actually two stars. There's a normal star called Sirius A, and then a white dwarf called Sirius B. In comparison, our own star is a yellow dwarf. Yellow dwarfs are a little bit larger than white dwarfs, which suggests it might be possible that Sirius B has a solar system like ours, and that perhaps there is life on Sirius B. However, it's actually not very likely that biological life would still be alive on Sirius B. Apparently, I was doing some reading on this, white dwarves are usually the burnt-out cores of older dead stars, which means any system in orbit around Sirius B is probably a dead solar system. Of course, that only opens up the possibility that the Syrians are ghosts. They could be the telepathically endowed ghosts of deceased aliens, or they could be spirits bound to a dead world that are trying to get off, maybe by forming telepathic communion with us. It could allow them to translocate themselves across the interstellar void and come here, living vicariously through our experiences. Move over Basir Assad. These Syrians have full-spectrum dominance. All right, you might say. Alien ghosts that possess our brightest minds in order to get a foothold on our planet. That is too far out, even for the spectral skull session. Well, I have good news for you. I found on Wikipedia that astronomers have been watching Sirius since 1894. They've been seeing irregular patterns of brightening and dimming. 
It is now widely believed, although not entirely accepted, there is a third star in the Sirius system. A 1995 study concluded that such a companion likely exists with a mass of roughly 0.05 solar masses, a small red dwarf or a large brown dwarf. So if the alien ghosts are too much for you, we can still hold out hope that the Syrians are located in orbit around a hypothetical Sirius C. Now, Wilson was deeply troubled by the Syrians being from Sirius because he found a weird book that seemed to confirm their backstory. In 1976, Robert K.G. Temple, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, published The Sirius Mystery, colon, Conclusive New Evidence of Alien Influence on the Origins of Humankind and the Traditions of an African Tribe. In this book, Sir Robert argued that the Earth had been visited by an advanced race from a planet in the system of the double star Sirius around 4,500 BC. Temple based this assertion on the fact that definite and specific knowledge of the Sirius system can be found in the mythology of the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and some surviving African tribes. Uh, as near as I can tell, that definite and specific knowledge is the knowledge that Sirius is a double star system. You see, you can't tell that Sirius is a double star just by looking through your own eyes unaided. You have to be fairly equipped with a telescope and have some astronomical knowledge in order to figure that out. I don't understand why Sir Robert would not have just concluded that the ancient Africans, Egyptians, and Babylonians had telescopes and were capable of doing some astronomical calculations. I guess I'm also troubled by the new evidence suggesting that Sirius is a triple star system, since if it's a triple star system, then the ancient Babylonians, Egyptians, and Africans would just be plain wrong about it being a double star system. So be on the lookout for confirmation that there are three stars in Sirius, which would really help us be confident that Wilson was not talking to the Syrians, but some other kind of a manipulative occult entity. In any event, Wilson was becoming more and more freaked out by these coincidences. He actually started keeping a list of people who claimed to be in contact with alien civilizations. And they included the psychic Yuri Geller, who actually said that he was in contact with Syrians, R. Buckminster Fuller, a renowned scientist philosopher who stated that he sometimes thinks he receives messages from interstellar telepaths. One Dr. Jack Sarfati, a physicist, described himself as receiving telepathic communications from extraterrestrials. And Wilson found a newspaper clipping of Dr. Saul Paul Sarag, a famous physicist and professor. In this clipping, Dr. Paul said that 100 scientists around the Bay Area have been receiving telepathic communication, possibly from aliens. Dr. Paul went on to say that so far, most of these scientists are only willing to discuss the matter with trusted colleagues, but that more of them lately have been considering the possibility of coming out of the closet and talking about it in public. I can affirm this particular story. I know from reading uh, the work of Professor of Religion, Diane Pasolka, her 2019 book, American Cosmic, colon, UFOs, Religion, and Technology, talks about an invisible college of physicists and engineers who either believe in UFOs fervently or secretly describe being actively in contact with them. So this seems to be a very real phenomenon of scientists 
having telepathic communication with something. Um, another person that went on Wilson's list, the psychoanalyst turned dolphin scholar, John Lilly, author of the countercultural classic text, Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer, a kind of cyber shamanic handbook for self-programming. He had his own synchronicitous encounter with a telepathic alien in the early 1970s. The story is that Lily was flying to Los Angeles. And what do you do when you're an American psychonaut bored on a long plane ride in the 1970s? You do ketamine, which is a powerful disassociative narcotic. John Lilly went into the bathroom, and he did just that. There he received a message from an extraterrestrial being, telling him it would prove its reality by shutting down the energy field of Los Angeles. As he headed back to his seat, Lilly heard the captain announce over the intercom that they would be diverting because of a power outage in Los Angeles. Fascinated by the implication that he was part of a larger community of enlightened adepts, Wilson leaned into the escalating weirdness. Following the advice of Crowley, he tried a practice that involves cultivating an alter ego. He declared himself a psychic and began reading tarot cards. He found that when he projected charisma, he was uncannily accurate at doing tarot readings. Next, he began testing his psychic powers. He would get a new magazine in the mail and he would go straight to page 23, a number he personally connected with synchronicities. And there he would find a line of prose that seemed to reference something from a dream he had had the night before. He meditated and had visions of LSD guru Timothy Leary flying over the walls of his prison. Four years later, he would learn that Timothy Leary had been practicing a form of meditation that involved visualizing himself flying at the same time that Wilson had a vision of Leary flying out of his own prison. The strangeness also began to spread from Wilson to his family. Wilson notes that some years earlier, around 1965, the family was living in New Jersey, and there he and the entire family saw a flying saucer land in the hill near their home. They looked at it through binoculars. They even invited the neighbors over to look at it too. Everyone agreed that it was real, but they couldn't agree on what it was. Wilson said that privately, he thought it was probably a helicopter. Later that day, his four-year-old son, insisted he had encountered a green-skinned alien woman outside the house. She apparently told him he should study physics when he grows up. Wilson dismissed all of this until years later when a friend of the family came over and she casually mentioned she had seen a UFO that same month in 1965. Apparently she had also been living in the New Jersey area. On another occasion, Wilson says his kids were meditating in one room while he was reading in another. There was a loud thump from the room with the children. When Wilson checked the situation out, the children were adamant that the oldest daughter, Luna, had levitated herself across the room. Wilson says that neither he nor Luna were ever able to confirm that this is in fact what happened. Later while meditating, Wilson had a vision of the Egyptian goddess Nuit. This, he would learn, is a goddess associated with Sirius another weird synchronicity. As a scholar, Wilson also recognized Nuit as belonging to the same archetype as the Blessed Virgin Mary, so revered by Catholicism. So he continued praying to Nuit slash the Virgin Mary, addressing her as Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe. And then he had another vision where she came to him again and told him that she had healed his legs. 
Wilson had suffered polio as a child. He'd lost some of the functionality in his legs, although much of it had been restored thanks to the Sister Kenny method, an unorthodox method pursued by his parents. He continued to suffer from recurring bouts of leg pains, even in adulthood. And he checked back with his mother about the Nuit Virgin Mary story. And he discovered, indeed, his mother said that she had made special devotions to the Blessed Virgin Mary at the time of his illness, asking her for a cure. As all this was happening, Wilson was also working full-time as a writer. Although he had finished Illuminatus, it wouldn't actually start to make him any money for many years. During the interval between Playboy magazine and the success of Illuminatus, Wilson's family struggled with money. Wilson began to struggle himself psychologically in more ways than one, and so he turned to meditation yet again. He writes, I was doing Sufi heart chakra exercises every day to open myself more and more to love for all beings. It was not that I really wanted or hoped to become a saint, but merely that without such self-work, I could e easily crumble into the bundle of paranoia and self-pity that many a 1960s idealist had become during the Nixon counter-revolution. The heart chakra opened at times, and light poured out, just like it says in the textbook, and the mystic loved every living creature. The whole world was my body. It was gorgeous. Related to this, Wilson writes that probably the greatest thing that came out of all his experiments with occult philosophy and brain change was that the experiences of strange phenomenon helped him to listen to his children. His family didn't share his philosophical worldview. He had to make a special effort to be open-minded and to understand where they were coming from in conversation. He writes, a miracle then happened. I know this will be harder for the average American parent to believe than any of my other weird yarns, but my horde of self-willed and self-directed adolescents began to listen to me. Real communication was established. Even though I was in my 40s and grain in the beard, I was able to talk intelligently with four adolescents about our philosophical disagreements. Our respect for each other grew by leaps and bounds. But it wasn't over yet. The high weirdness peaked in the late 1970s. Wilson had been friends with LSD guru Timothy Leary for years. Once Leary became imprisoned in California, Wilson started writing him letters. Wilson had previously made contact with Leary as a journalist. He seems to have held Leary in very high regard, thinking of him almost as a mentor. He was very careful not to mention the telepathic messages and weird synchronicities that he had been experiencing in his correspondence with Leary. He seems to have worried that it would come across to his mentor as unhinged and possibly spook his beloved icon. But then one day, Wilson received a letter from Dr. Leary that scared him. And I quote, Dear Bob, loved your letter. Are you in touch with teachings, methods, teachers, etc., that transmit higher intelligence that you are totally hooked into? I believe that higher intelligence can be contacted and have described how to do it and what they transmit, etc. Have you contacted Jonah? Ask her to send you a copy of Terra 2. Jonah was Timothy Leary's wife, and Terra 2 was a book that Leary wrote while he was in prison. Apparently, Leary believed he was also in telepathic communication with beings from outer space. Of course, Wilson could not have known about this 
because Leary was still writing his book at the time, and he, after all, had been trapped in a maximum security prison, frequently held in solitary confinement as well. Eventually, Wilson was able to get into the prison in Vacaville, California, and there he had a meeting with Timothy Leary. He was surprised that Leary seemed to be doing really quite well, even though he was facing potentially life in prison. In another weird synchronicity, Leary almost immediately told Wilson he considered himself to be the reincarnation of Aliester Crawley. He also shared with Wilson that they were both members of a network of enlightened beings. So Wilson left Leary in prison, his mind totally blown. He says that he doubted Leary's high praise of himself. He thought that perhaps Leary was being too generous, and he thought that this was probably a failing that many enlightened people have, that they look on others and they think, well, that person is as enlightened as I am. But then Wilson began receiving letters from people all over the world who claimed to be in contact with ascended beings of various kinds. Wilson says, for instance, one chap claimed to be a representative of the real Illuminati, and he struck me, the skeptic, as quite possibly a professional con man, but he took Arlene and I out to dinner at the most expensive restaurant in Berkeley, and he spent $70 on it. He assured us that he was protecting us at all times, dropped a few hints that he might be God, and slipped me $200 before he left, assuring us that our poverty would not continue much longer. Wilson assumed the guy was a con man, but the other shoe never dropped, because Wilson never heard from the man again in his life. A couple factors at this point began to put the brakes on the strangeness for Wilson. The major one happened at a party. It was October 1974. The Wilsons were throwing what they called Crawley Mass. It was a celebration of the birthday of Aliester Crawley. And who came to this party? None other than French computer scientist turned UFOologist Jacques Vallée. For those who are interested, Chris and I discussed Jacques Vallée's work extensively in episode 12, Galactic Federation or Fraudulation. Wilson had had enough. Things were getting too weird. And so he turned to Vallée for guidance, unburdening himself to him, telling his whole story of being in contact with Syrians and receiving messages and synchronicities from the stars. Vallée listened very closely. And then, in a quiet voice, he told Wilson that the evidence emerging suggested to him that UFOs weren't extraterrestrial at all, but they seemed to be intelligent systems intent on convincing us that they are extraterrestrial. Vallée explained that, historically, these beings have always presented themselves in a fashion that fits into the background beliefs of the culture. In medieval Europe, they presented as angels and little people. In the 19th century, they presented as airship pilots, often falling out of blips. In the early 1950s, they claimed to be from Venus. Then when Soviet researchers revealed Venus to be a super-hot, toxic mess, the entities began maintaining they were from Jupiter and planets on other stars. This exchange with Dr. Vallée had a sobering effect on Wilson. He began to become more skeptical of the messages he was receiving from the entities. It was this French scientist who helped Wilson get over his own state of awe at the phantasms that were communicating with him. He was, in one sense, intellectually exercised 
by a quiet conversation with a man of science. In turning away from the Syrians, Wilson reaffirmed a running theme of his own philosophy and his fiction. You can't always trust specters. Those of you who were with us in the last episode, you'll recall the villains of Wilson's novel, Illuminatus, were the Illuminati. And in his fictional telling, they transformed people into religious fanatics by getting them high on marijuana or an extract of marijuana. This was part of an illuminizing experience, the sum total of which would convince them of the sacred importance of the Illuminati's cause. They would then become secret agents willing to die to advance their new cult programming. The larger Wilsonian message here, you simply cannot trust the messages you get from the other side. You don't know who or what is trying to hack into your soul. This episode is wrapping up, but an important question remains. For those of us who are active students of the occult or the paranormal, what else can we learn from Wilson's experiences? Is this merely a cautionary tale? Wilson himself presents it as one, since he warns the reader against replicating his journey. But is that all this is? A morbid story of one man's sideways trip through fear and paranoia? Maybe there's a bit more. Here's a quote from Wilson on Chapel Perilous. Chapel Perilous, like the mysterious entity called I, cannot be located in the space-time continuum. It is weightless, odorless, tasteless, and undetectable by ordinary instruments. Indeed, like the ego, it is even possible to deny that it is there. And yet, even more like the ego, once you are inside it, there doesn't seem to be any way to ever get out again, until you suddenly discover that it has been brought into being by thought and does not exist outside of you. Everything you fear is waiting with slavering jaws in Chapel Perilous. But if you are armed with the wand of intuition, the cup of sympathy, the sword of reason, and the pentacle of valor, you will find there, the legend says, the medicine of metals, the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone, true wisdom, and perfect happiness. That's what the legends always say. And the language of myth is poetically precise. For instance, if you go into that realm without the sword of reason, you will lose your mind. But at the same time, if you take only the sword of reason without the cup of sympathy, you will lose your heart. Even more remarkably, if you approach without the wand of intuition, you can stand at the door for decades, never realizing you have arrived. You might think you are just waiting for a bus or wandering from room to room, looking for your cigarettes, watching a TV show, or reading a cryptic and ambiguous book. Chapel Perilous is tricky that way. End quote. To conclude our show, wherever the audience is with respect to your own chapel, whether you are on the threshold or in over your head, remember that you may not be able to fight the demons off on your own, not with just your intuition or gut instincts. After all, Wilson needed the wit of a writer, the heart of the Sufi chakras, the love of his family, and the insight of his friends in order to pass safely through his own haunted headspace. For Spectral Skull Session, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane. Connect to them, drive bones, easy, go connect to them, drive bones.